Yeah, great to be here with you guys. I've been excited to be able to open up God's word with you and, and look at it together. Like Rob said, our church is a year and a half old. So just like Madison was planted uh, this last year, uh, the year before that, we planted the church in, in Minneapolis. And I really also consider Rob just a, a great friend. And it's an honor to come and uh, be a part of this church family for one Sunday morning for the first time. And so yeah, excited to be here with you guys. I was sharing with Rob last night when we were having dinner together that I feel like one thing that's changed a little bit in our church um, since a year ago is that we saw some really exciting stories of people coming to know Jesus. As you guys have, some of you have been baptized and you've seen people get baptized and there's these life-changing stories happen. But I feel like some of those people who have been baptized in the life of our church have started to count the cost in a different way of what it means to follow Jesus. And there's actually been some bummer stories starting to pop up in our church as well. There was one girl in particular who began to learn about the Bible's teaching on sexuality. And she sat down with one of our, one of our staff and she realized that she was in a immoral relationship that kind of fell outside of the boundary of what God says biblical sexuality is. And her response was, I'm going to believe the part about Jesus forgiving me and loving me in unconditionally, but I'm going to throw out the Bible's sexual ethic. She's saying, okay, I can have the part that I like about Jesus, but in terms of his teaching, I don't really like that part, so I'm just going to push that aside. And what I've realized is that there's actually a few different ways that we can view Jesus' teaching, which is found in the Bible. And I found this illustration personally helpful, and it's been some helpful to some people that I've talked to, so I want to share it with you. There's basically three different ways that we can see the Bible. One is we can kind of hide behind the Bible. This is sort of the religious response to the Bible, okay? So you can hide behind the Bible, which means you claim to believe all of the ethical teaching of the Bible— but you're not real about your own struggles and sin. And so you hold other people accountable to the teaching of the Bible, but what you're really doing is using the Bible as a front, and you're hiding behind it and not living under the authority of the Bible. So you can hide behind the Bible, or you can sort of be around the Bible. So imagine there's a circle, you're at your small group, and the Bible is sitting on a chair in that group, and everyone has their opinion, right? Somebody thinks this, somebody thinks that, somebody thinks that about how we should live as Christians. And you allow the Bible to have one voice in the room. But you actually agree with somebody else's opinion more in the room, and so you take that opinion. Sometimes that's how small groups operate. So we could be hiding behind the Bible, or we could be around the Bible and sort of letting it be one voice in our life. But the Bible actually calls us to live under the authority of the Bible. You can hide behind the Bible, you can be around the Bible, or you can be under the authority of the Bible, which is synonymous with being under the authority of Jesus. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, I know you guys have been seeing this theme pop up, I heard Rob talk about it in last week's message, of Jesus' lordship. And what we're going to see in this passage is sort of a continuation of last week's message. And here's sort of the big idea that's going to hold it all together. And that is when Jesus is your king, you obey his teaching. 
When Jesus is your king, you are under his authority and you obey his teaching. You don't just pick and choose what you like. You embrace all that he says as what is best for your life. So we're actually going to kind of look at a negative example of how some religious leaders responded to Jesus' teaching. And in this section of scripture, we're going to say, see three ways to dismiss the teaching of King Jesus. The first one is to reject the force of Jesus' teaching. So we're looking at Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 9. And I'm going to start by reading verses 9 through 16. Luke 20, 9 through 16. It'll be on the screens or you can follow along in your Bible or on your Bible app with me. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another tenant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. The one also, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. So what we see clearly in this passage is that Jesus is a great teacher. He takes the truth of God and he bottom shelves it for us. And he often is explaining the word to people in parables. So he's telling short, punchy stories that really bring the force of the word of God into our hearts because we clearly understand them and we see them vividly portrayed before us. So this parable is as easy to understand today as it was to understand when Jesus first spoke the words. We can imagine this scenario. There's this landowner. He has a vineyard. He is leaving the country and he still wants to make money off of that vineyard. And so he leases it out to some tenants. And those tenants are presumably supposed to pay him by giving him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So he's in a far off country. He hasn't received payment. And so he sends a servant to go collect the payment from the tenants. And our expectation would be that those tenants would hold up their side of the agreement and they would give him some of the fruit of the vine and he would receive payment. But instead, we're a little bit shocked because the first servant comes and they mock him, beat him, and throw him out of the vineyard and won't give him what he's asking for. So the landowner is confused by that, but evidently he's a very patient individual, much more patient than I am, probably much more patient than many of you would be in a similar situation. And he sends another servant into the vineyard. And the same thing happens again. But being a very patient man, he sends a third servant into the vineyard. 
and again. They beat him and throw him out. Can you imagine what your reaction would be if that happened and you were the landowner? And so he's thinking, okay, why aren't they respecting my servants? Maybe if I sent someone who was incredibly precious to me, they would respect him. So he takes his beloved son and he sends him into the vineyard. And they don't just beat him and throw him out. Jesus says they kill him because they have ridiculous logic. They think if we kill him, then the landowner's response is going to be to give us the vineyard. What kind of logic is that? You kill the landowner's son and he's like, oh, I guess I don't have anybody to give the vineyard to anymore. I guess I'll give it to the guys who killed my son. It's absolutely ridiculous. But here's what's even more ridiculous. The scribes or the religious teachers response to this story. So Jesus concludes by saying, what's the landowner going to do? He's going to destroy the tenants. He's going to send a delegation in. He's going to have them arrested. And he's going to put them up on trial and hope that they rot in prison for the rest of their lives. And the response of the religious leaders is, surely not. What they literally say is, God forbid. Why would they respond that way? How did they get such a deluded view of God's justice? Let me just paint this in really vivid terms. I think we already feel the ridiculousness of this, but let me paint it in even more vivid terms so that we can feel the weight of it in our day. Okay, imagine this scenario. Imagine that there is a national real estate developer. He builds an apartment complex right next to University of Wisconsin's campus. And he leases all of these apartments out, and there's one tenant in his apartment complex who never pays his rent. A bunch of college guys, they're spending all their money on beer, right? And so he sends some local guys, one after another, to go knock on the door to collect the rent. And every time they open the door, these guys just punch him in the face. And he's like, are you kidding me? So he flies his son in from California, and his son goes up to the door, knocks on the door, asks for the rent, and a guy in the apartment pulls out a gun and shoots him in the face. And you hear that this landowner has the audacity to prosecute those guys. And your response is, surely not. God forbid. That would be the epitome of ridiculousness. So how did these religious leaders who knew the Bible, who claimed to love God, end up responding to this parable this way? The reason is, as we'll go on to see, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. They knew deep down God is the patient landowner who sends person after person to us 
to tell us about the love of God, to share with us the good news of the gospel. He cares about us. He doesn't just care about what we produce for him, but he actually cares for us as people. He loves every person that he has made and wants us to come to a knowledge of the truth. But prophet after prophet came, person after person came, and the world has rejected them. And so God sent his beloved son into the world to reconcile this relationship between God and humanity. And when God put that son in the middle of the world, anyone who could get their hands on him wanted him dead. Those who had been supposedly waiting for the son's arrival were now plotting his death. These scribes, these priests, these religious leaders were having meetings on a daily basis, trying to figure out how they could catch him in something that he said so that they could kill him. You see, the reason that these religious leaders rejected the words of Jesus is because they were true. They rejected them because they couldn't deny them. And what's true of us as people is we are often most angry when the word of God confronts us directly. Not when it's unclear to us, but when it's so clear to us that it's giving us a very clear option between two opposites. One is bow the knee to King Jesus, and the other is turn our back on him and blame him instead of taking responsibility for our own lives. So Jesus, being the patient, gentle king that he is, continues the conversation with the religious leaders. He doesn't just shut them down, but he says, okay, you won't listen to this parable that I'm telling you, so I am going to appeal to something that you say that you believe. I'm going to appeal to the Old Testament. And we see a second way in their response that we can dismiss the teaching of King Jesus, and that is blindness to Jesus' teaching. We see a type of chosen blindness, a turning their backs on what Jesus is saying. Luke 20, 17 through 19. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Okay, so Jesus appeals to the Old Testament. Scribes literally wrote down the Old Testament word for word. They no doubt had this passage 
memorized. And Jesus says, you know this verse. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now that verse is from a larger section in Psalm 118. Let me read you kind of the context of this verse so you can understand better what Jesus is getting at. Psalm 118, 22 through 26 says this, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. So in context, what we see about Psalm 118 is there's two conflicting statements found in that section of scripture. On one hand, this cornerstone is being rejected by the builders. The very foundation of the building is being rejected by builders, which means the whole building is gonna collapse. And there seems to be in the passage a second group of people who are rejoicing in the salvation of God. They're blessing the coming of the Lord. And so no doubt, the scribes, the teachers, the religious leaders, the Pharisees had wrestled with this passage, trying to figure out who are the people who are rejecting the cornerstone? Who are the people rejecting the Lord? And who are the people who are blessing the name of the Lord? We get a little bit more of a clue a little bit earlier in the passage. Sets this up. In verse 18, so just before this, the psalmist explains, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but has not given me over to death. And he continues to rejoice in God's salvation. So we learn that the people who are rejoicing in the coming of the Lord are those who are enduring his discipline, which often comes to them as they receive his teaching, and it convicts them and often devastates them. But their response in that is not to turn away from the Lord, it's to turn to the Lord. Here's the interesting twist. Jesus applies this very scripture to the lives of these people who are standing in front of them, and they reject his teaching. And in rejecting his teaching, they fulfill his teaching. Let me say that again. In rejecting his teaching, they fulfill his teaching. In saying, this doesn't apply to us. We don't want to listen to you. How dare you accuse us of being the people who reject the cornerstone? They become the people who reject the cornerstone. They plot the death of Jesus. If you reject the teaching of Jesus that is difficult for you to accept, you will fulfill that teaching in your own life. I was reminded of this one time when I was working at Stanley Seymour. So I had a fun summer job cleaning carpets. And I was working with a guy whose name was Mick. And when he was 
not working, he would wear Guns N' Roses t-shirts rolled up in the sleeves and put cigarettes in there. And I loved Mick. He was just such a great guy. And we got a lot of time together in the yellow Stanley Seymour van. He would drive, I would sit shoddy, and we would talk life. And one time, Mick was telling me this story about when he was a kid. And he told me that, man, he's always just, you know, been angry. And he said, but I I didn't like to admit that a lot. And so uh, one time my mom told me when I was 18 years old that I, I was really an angry person and she didn't want to live with me. And he says, that made me so mad that I moved out of the house. (laughs) And I said to Mick, I said, that's one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever heard before in my life. She said, you struggle with anger. Instead of being like, yeah, I struggle with anger. You got mad at her and moved out of the house. And he's like, oh yeah, I guess that is a little bit ridiculous. (laughs) Because he wasn't able to accept her correction, he fulfilled her correction. And what we're seeing in this passage is that when you reject the teaching of Jesus, you actually prove that his teaching is true when it comes to his warnings. My question for you is, how are you responding to the difficult teaching of Jesus? Do you have a posture of humility when you hear the biblical sexual ethic, when you hear about the reality of hell, when you read through the Old Testament and you see that people are killed on God's command by the nation of Israel, do you say, no, not going to believe that. I'm just going to cut those parts out and believe the parts that I like. Or are you like a child humbly receiving the teaching of Jesus and saying, you must have a perspective that I don't have. The fundamental reality that allows us to accept Jesus' teaching at face value is an attitude of trust. An attitude that says, there is something that I'm not seeing. God is infinitely more wise than I am. And his word can be trusted. Okay, so this conversation with these religious leaders is not going well so far. And so they're kind of tired of talking to Jesus, probably still plotting his execution. And so they actually send a delegation to further the conversation with Jesus. And we see a third way to dismiss the teaching of King Jesus. And that is to pretend to believe Jesus' teaching. This is maybe the one that is most nauseating. To be hypocritical, to pretend to be sincere, but to actually be in your heart rejecting what Jesus is saying. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. 
so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar's, Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So we see these spies that are sent in are on their A-game of hypocrisy, pretending to be sincere, they flatter Jesus. I mean, you can just hear the sarcasm in their voice. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. We have a theological question for you. By the way, pretending can often come in the form of apparently sincere questions. You remember what Satan said in Genesis 3? Did God really say? Sometimes questions seem so innocent. But in this case, they're trying to catch Jesus in what he says so that he will be arrested by the Roman government and killed. There's no sincerity to what they're saying. And so they ask him a question that could potentially put Jesus in a pickle. They ask him, okay, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's why that's such a great question if you're trying to trap somebody. Because if Jesus says no, he'll be in good with the Jews who are monotheists and believe that it is wrong to say what was popular to say in that day, which was Caesar is Lord. So you're good with the Jews, but you're in real bad with the Romans because it was law to say Caesar is Lord. And if Jesus says, oh yeah, you should pay, pay tribute to Caesar. Call him Lord, give him your taxes. Then he's in good with the Romans, but he's in really bad with the Jews who look at that and see him as a traitor against the one true God. It's a really bad idea to try to trick the maker of the universe with a question when he is the one who is making it possible for you to breathe at that moment. So it should not surprise us that Jesus answers well. And he asks them to hold coin. And he says, whose picture's on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. He goes, just give it back to him. It's his. But give to God what is God's. 
Caesar's likeness or inscription is on the coin. God's likeness and inscription is on you because you have been made in his image. Jesus is saying, stop pretending to be sincere and to accept my teaching. Give your life to me. Put yourself under my authority. You will only find joy. You will only find happiness when you live as God designed you to live, which is not independently, but under his authority, obeying his teaching and thriving as his child. And yet we dismiss this teaching so often by pretending sincerity. We come to church, we hear God's word, we're convicted. We bow after the message and we promise God again, I won't do this, I won't do that. I'm gonna start reading my Bible this week. I'm gonna stop looking at porn this week. I'm gonna stop sleeping with my girlfriend this week. I promise you, or I will stop. Let me tell you, God will not be mocked. He knows that you are not being sincere. I remember one time my parents left town when I was a senior in high school, and before they left town, they told me, Drew, we do not want you having any of your friends over to the house. And I remember saying to them, I will not have any friends over to the house. And in the back of my mind, I thought, there's a high school football game tonight. I'm going to invite 40 people over to our house. <laughs> so my parents left, went to the high school football game, and I invited 50 people over to our house. And we had a great time. We didn't do anything illegal. They are just having fun. And my parents were gone. And I thought I got away with it scot-free, except for that one of my friends, this is going to date me, left his AOL instant messenger up on my parents' computer. <laughs> and so I didn't know that. And so my parents sat me down in our family room and they said, Drew, did you have people over to our house when we were gone? I said, no, I didn't have people. Why, why would you think that? And my dad says, well, because this person's AOL instant messenger was left up on the computer. And I sat there in stunned silence. And my dad said to me, the worst words that you can hear from your parents, I am so disappointed in you. I didn't get punished but that was the worst punishment that I could have gotten. You don't win when you pretend to be sincere and you disobey your parents or you disobey God. You actually end up in a worse spot than you would have if you would have just been honest at the beginning that you had no intention of obeying. 
Which one do you most identify with? Are you flat out rejecting the teaching of Jesus? Are you purposefully blinding yourself to it so that you don't have to feel the force of it? Are you pretending? Okay, we all do this. How do we move forward? What do we do next? There's a really surprising twist in the story. At Salt City, we've been studying through the book of Acts, which is the other book of the Bible that was written by Luke. So it's sort of the second half of the story. And this is what Luke records in the book of Acts in a sermon from Peter. This is what Peter said. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Here's what Peter says to a group of people who did not literally pound the nails into Jesus' hands and into his feet, who might not have even been there at his crucifixion. He said to them, you killed the author of life. And I'm saying the same thing to you and to myself this morning. We killed the author of life. It was our sin that hung Jesus on the cross. God sent his beloved son to our house. His son knocked on the door. We opened up the door and we shot him in the face rather than bowing the knee to him. But here's what was intentionally missing in Jesus' parable. It would make all the sense in the world for the owner to come and because we have so mistreated his son to kill us. But there's this added element in the story. The miraculous power of God has risen Jesus from the dead. So you imagine the scenario, you shoot the son in the face, you leave him for dead, and he comes back to the door, and he knocks again, and you open, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> I thought I killed him. And you're expecting him to destroy you. And here's what we see in Jesus. He says, I'm the cornerstone that you rejected. You're the killer. I was the victim, but I died for your sin. And so I'm making you an offer. Repent of your sin and I will forgive you even though 
you have treated me, my authority, and my teaching with such contempt that you deserve to die. God's ways are not like our ways. He is so patient. He warns us, speaks hard truth to us, because he loves us. Can you admit that it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross? If you can admit that, then you can receive his forgiveness. And I think it'd be appropriate for all of us to take a moment as I pray to confess the ways that we have disregarded Jesus' teaching. Whether we just became a Christian, aren't a Christian yet, or you've been a Christian for a long time, you can think of things even this week where you knew that Jesus was calling you to do something and you set his teaching aside. And you said, no, I don't want your authority in my life. I want my own authority. And you have to see that Jesus is not rejecting you here this morning. But he says, come back to me. I know how you are. That's why I died for you. Let's pray.